Well, that's not what I'm preaching about this morning, so let's pray, and then we'll move on. Father, thank you for, for the body of Christ. It really is an amazing thing to see how you minister to people through people who are part of your body. And it's all because of your grace that you've done this great thing. You've bought the church with your own blood. It belongs to you, and it really is great. Um, Lord, may we want to be like you as our Savior, not wanting to be served, but to, to serve ourselves. Thank you for this opportunity we have to open your word and to be challenged, to be comforted, to be encouraged. Lord, minister to us so that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the absolute sovereignty of God. More specifically, we're going to be talking about the the sovereign grace of God. That is to say that He shows His grace however He wants to whomever He wants. It is to say that, that God is God and He does whatever He pleases in salvation. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the sovereign grace of God. This isn't always easy for people to swallow. This isn't always easy to hear. Others find it tremendous and wonderful, but it's not always easy, especially at first. I liken it to my coffee drinking experience in life. I don't mean to trivialize it, but you'll perhaps know what I mean when I offer this illustration by way of introduction. For most of my life, I didn't drink coffee. Most people don't drink it at at a young age. I didn't like the smell of it. I didn't like the taste of it. It was the last thing I wanted. I wanted Diet Coke, Diet Mountain Dew, something like that. And then someone convinced me to try a blended coffee drink with lots of cream, lots of calories. I tried a Frappuccino, probably very little coffee. And I thought, you know, I got this on my taste buds. This isn't too bad. I kind of like coffee. It's not as good as ice cream, but it's just pretty good. I thought, I'm becoming a coffee drinker. And then, before you know it, somebody coaxes you to the next level. And and I remember trying an iced caramel macchiato. Lots of caramel, more calories. And I thought, I'm I'm growing up, you know. I'm now in my 30s, but I'm growing up. I'm going to drink coffee. And then you move to the next level. You have a latte with lots of syrup in it and You think you're getting more mature and drinking coffee. And before you know it, you drink black coffee with cream and sugar. Before you know it, you drink black coffee. And then if you really want to be, you know, uh, an elitist, you drink espresso. Well, I love espresso. I long for the day when I can have a layover on some trip and I can stop in Italy and I can stand there at the espresso bar and I can say, doppio espresso, because it'll be the only... Uh, Italian that I know, but it will be what I love. And just to savor that $5, five euro drink or whatever it's going to be and drink that doppio espresso. But it didn't happen overnight. It's, it's, it's been over time that I've developed a taste for this. And it's kind of the same thing in the Christian life when it comes to the sovereign grace of God and, and developing a taste for it, if you will, and finding it great and finding it wonderful. When I first became a Christian, when I was a student in college, I would have told you that I accepted Christ. I would have told you that that I asked Jesus into my life, or something like that, because that's what everyone around me would say, and that's what I would have said. But then you you go to Bible studies, and you read the Bible more and more, and, and you see these words, like in Ephesians 1, you see this word, chosen. And you read Romans, and you read Romans 8, and you see words like predestined. 
And you, for me, I didn't really like those words. I just glossed over them, ignored them maybe. And, and then before you know it, you, you kind of explain it away. And then you're in some environment where someone challenges your explanation of explaining it away. And, and one thing leads to another. And then you read John paying attention. And you read things uh, coming from the mouth of Jesus that are amazing. Jesus saying, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You, you read uh, Jesus saying things to, to his opponents like, the reason you don't believe is because you're not of my sheep. You read Romans a little more carefully, and you hear that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And before you know it, spiritually, you're drinking dopio espresso. And before you know it, you're even not only liking this reality of sovereign grace, you're loving the reality of sovereign grace. You find yourself like the Apostle Paul, at least this is the case in my life, I'm finding myself like the Apostle Paul almost out of control in Ephesians chapter 1 where he is blessing God unhindered, praising God with all of his heart, practically stumbling over his words because of the reality that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And it's wonderful, and it has a fragrant aroma. I'm not sure where you are on your uh, theological drinking level. I'm not sure if you're at the espresso level, or if you're at the Diet Coke, Diet Mountain Dew level, and you don't even like the smell of coffee. I don't know. But Romans chapter 9, which is where we are this morning, is double espresso. Okay? It's strong. It's clear. It's about the sovereign grace of God. That God shows His saving grace to those He desires to show His saving grace. And He withholds it from others. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now... You might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't drink coffee. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? (laughs) Well, it's just an illustration. (laughs) The illustration breaks down. It doesn't matter if you drink coffee or if you don't drink coffee. But the point is made that eventually as we mature, not with coffee, but in our Christianity, we want to see God for who He really is. And we do need to see that God really is sovereign in showing His grace. And salvation really, truly, genuinely is all of grace, meaning there is nothing that God saw us do first, which would be a reward. It's grace. God initiated. God carried through. So God gets all of the praise. And so Romans chapter 9 gives us this good, strong exhortation and reminder and teaching that salvation is all of God. And Romans 9 answers four big questions about the sovereign grace of God. The first five verses are introductory, and then we have these four big questions about the sovereign grace of God. We looked at the first one last time. I'll just read that passage by way of review and just make a couple of comments. And then we'll look at the second and third big questions about the sovereign grace of God this morning. And then we'll look at the fourth one in the days ahead. Let me say one more thing before we get to this first one. I said something about this being uh, a double espresso kind of passage. I just want to remind you, too, that, that Romans chapter 9 was given to the early church. 
where no one really was a very mature Christian. So this is, this is for us, no matter where you are, to learn. I mean, the only passage I can think of, and this is for, this is for new Christians in essence, the only passage I can think of that, that might uh, give this one a run for its money when it comes to strong, powerful exhortation and teaching about the sovereign grace of God would be the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John sometime looking for this. It is amazing. Remember, the Gospel of John is the book we tell unbelievers to read. Well, if unbelievers are ready for the sovereign grace of God, apparently believers should be. And it's right that we tell unbelievers to read John because it tells us at the very end of the book that it's written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so let's see God for who He really is, sovereign in His grace. The first big question is assumed. It's not actually asked, but it is answered, and that's, is God a failure? Is God a failure? And we see this question dealt with in verses 6 to 13. Verses 6 to 13, the reason it comes up is because we've just read Romans 8 in the chronology, and Romans 8 tells us about how great and sure salvation is, and there's nothing that can reverse salvation. It's absolutely sure in Christ. But that begs the question. That brings up the logical question. Wait a minute. If, if God is so sure about keeping His promises so that we can be so sure, what about all those promises He made in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel when, in fact, most Jews aren't believing in Jesus as Messiah? Hmm. Has He dropped the ball? Has He dropped the ball on His Old Testament promises to Israel because most Jews don't believe that Jesus is Messiah right now? And therefore, if that's true, then maybe we shouldn't really trust God for Romans 8 either. That's the logic. That's what leads us up to this point. Well, is God a failure? Well, look at verse 6 with me if you would. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. And then he gives a couple of historical illustrations. Isaac is first in verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Verse 7 then says, But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's quoting Genesis 21.12. Then it says in verse 8, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. Then he quotes Genesis 17, Genesis 18. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. What's he doing there? We saw last time what he's doing there is he's providing Isaac as the illustration to prove a point. The point is God brought his blessing through one of the sons, not both of the sons. It was through Isaac, not Ishmael. Point being, God wasn't trying to bring the blessing to all of them. Point being, as I said multiple times last time, God wasn't trying to be a universalist. Because, by the way, if God was trying to bring universal blessing, if God is trying to be a universalist, then He has failed. And the answer in verse 6 would be the exact opposite, and you shouldn't trust God for the promises of Romans 8. But He wasn't trying to. He was specifically aiming to give His sovereign blessing and grace through Isaac. Then He gives Jacob as another, another illustration, in case we uh, need another biblical support. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they, referring to the twins, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Sort of takes all the air out of the room. And I don't want to re-preach the passage. I'll just remind you that what should shock us and be so appalling is not that he loved Jacob. What should shock us in light of everything in Romans so far is that he loved, or, or what should shock us is not that he hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob. Because Jacob had a sin nature too. And Jacob was in Adam too. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. So really, that's what should shock us. But the the point is not that. The point is God distinguished. Before they had done anything, they had the same dad, same mom, and God said, it will be this one, and it will be not that one. God wasn't trying to be a universalist. And so has God failed at trying to save all of the Jews? No, no. That wasn't the intent to begin with. And then he knows that this is going to bring all kinds of questions. And so we have a sanctified, Holy Spirit-inspired detour. In one sense, it should be able to stop right there at verse 13. Okay, The question is going to be, has God dropped the ball? No, he hasn't dropped the ball. God is a distinguishing God, and he sovereignly bestows his grace on those whom he wants to bestow his grace. And end of story. Really, the issue is done. And we should be okay with it. And we should remember, you know what? The Bible's been talking about this. I mean, the easiest way to come to grips with this is just to read the Bible. And you see, he distinguishes. He's God. But then questions come and questions come and questions come. And you might have questions. In fact, I'm sure you have questions. Some of you have been asking me questions. In fact, when we're done with Romans 9, I think we should just talk about some of the questions so I don't have to try to answer every question along the way. So that will be the plan, I think. But now we come to the second big question about God's sovereign grace, and it comes on the heels of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and all of a sudden you want to ask this next question, and that is, is God unfair? Is God unfair for doing that when they hadn't even done anything? Is He unfair? Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? How are you going to respond to that? Other than saying, well, I, that's not the God I learned in Sunday school. Other than saying, well, you know what, I, I'm not sure that's who God is to me. Uh, other than those kinds of responses, what shall we say then? Verse 14 goes on to say, is there injustice on God's part? That's the big question. Is God unjust? Is God unfair? Is God unrighteous? All those are synonyms. They mean the same thing. When you read Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, he expects you to say, is God bad? Is God unrighteous? Is God unfair? At least if this is the first time you've ever heard it. Think about the question, though. Is there injustice on God's part? I would think about that question in a, in a whining voice. Is, God, is, that, is that right? 
Or maybe more accusatively so. Is that right? As if to say, it's not. If God on the basis of nothing but His own choice, verse 12, determines who is to be saved and who rejected, verse 13, then there must be unfairness and unrighteousness with Him. Is the implied implication. And then the answer is in verse 14 as well. By no means. By no means. And maybe I shouldn't be saying it quietly. I don't know. Never. Perish the thought. It's that Greek phrase we see now and then in the Bible. Meganoitat. No, 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 no. Not in a bazillion lifetimes. Don't go there. You ought not even ask that question. Don't even ask. It's utterly unbiblical to question the righteousness of God. If God is anything, God is righteous. Now, others have pointed this out, and I'll point it out as well. What's interesting, he's going to give a couple of arguments now as to why he would say, don't even ask. Meganoita. No, 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 no. He gives a couple of arguments, but, but neither argument is the argument we might expect. I mean, at this point in time, man, he's just, just boom. Jacob, I love Esau. I, say, I hate it. Is God unjust? May it never be. Don't even go there. And we might expect him to say, okay, now let me explain to you how sovereign grace works together and how it complements and fits together with human responsibility and faith. You might expect that to kind of, you know, get us to calm down. He's going to talk about faith and human responsibility in chapter 10. But he doesn't do it yet. Instead, instead what he does is he actually tightens the screws. In other words, if I can be so bold as to say, oh, you have a problem with the sovereignty of God? Um, let me tell you even more about the sovereignty of God. <laughs> Put your seatbelt on. Because if you're even asking this question, you really need to go to Sunday School 101. We need a Bible lesson here. And so he gives a couple of arguments that are really strong. Look at the first one that's in verse 15. For he says to Moses, this is why he says, No, 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 no. For he says to Moses in Exodus 31, 19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How about that? A context that's about the goodness of God and showing His goodness, but He makes clear, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, the Bible that you say you believe, fellow Christians, teaches this not just in Romans 9. Jacob and Esau, that's not an isolated incident. Go back to, go back to Exodus 33 and you see the same thing. What you see in Exodus 33, quoted in verse 15, is God's absolute freedom. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's absolute freedom of God to do whatever He wants. Let me put it this way, with His stuff. It's talking about the godness of God. I made a bullet point list here just to try to solidify this in my own mind. God is free to do what He wants. 
He does not check with evangelicals to see if they're comfortable with what he does. God is free to do what he wants with his grace. This is what we mean by sovereign grace. God owes salvation to no one. God answers to no one. He is not on my leash or your leash. He is not and will not be domesticated. He is not subject to our religious musings or imaginations. God is not always popular. God is not an elected official. He's God. And He says, I'll do whatever I want to do. Have you not read Exodus? I like Psalm 135, verse 6. Paul doesn't quote it here. But Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases... Anybody know? Two words. He does. Yeah, that one pretty much puts us in our chair. (laughs) Whatever God pleases, He does. That goes with the territory of being God. You're sovereign. Now you know, and I know, that this isn't always very popular. Paul knew that too. That's why he's defending it and explaining But we're talking about who God is. Well, how important is that? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, over a hundred years ago knew what this meant as far as not being popular. He said this, If there is one doctrine in the world which reveals the enmity of the human heart more than another, it is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. When men hear the Lord's voice saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, they gnash their teeth and and call the preacher a high Calvinist or some other hard name. They do not love God, except they can make Him a little God. They cannot bear for Him to be supreme. They would gladly take His will away from Him and set up their own will as the first cause. I think it's right. I think He's right. If you want to stop the conversation at a party, start talking like Romans 9. And all of a sudden we get all huffy and puffy about God being God and acting like God. And it just shouldn't be that way. God didn't owe anything good to Jacob or Esau. We're just talking about God doing what He wants to do because He's God. And verse 16 is awesome. Look at verse 16. R.C. Sproul said, this is one verse that absolutely is fatal to Arminianism. All right, look at verse 16. So then, it, it is referring to God's mercy from verse 15, right? So then it, God's mercy, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let that one meddle with your mind a little bit. So then, God's mercy depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I underlined and circled, not on human will. I underlined and circled, but on God. This is a great verse. This is worth five stars in your Bible. If you don't write in your Bible, here's a good time to start. (laughs) It doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon God. God saves. Even think about that statement. That Jesus came to save His people from their sins. 
That has sovereign grace written all over it, even in the work of Christ. This is why he is exalted. This is why he is praised. This is why he is honored, because it's God's sovereign grace. Owing it to no one, he does choose, because he's loving and kind and gracious, to sovereignly give it as he sees fit. That's what happens. I love verse 16. It's so clear and helpful. And it helps us to get over this bad thing of saying, I don't know if that's fair. You know, I have a major pet peeve as a dad. I have many of them. My kids could tell you. But one of my biggest pet peeves, things I absolutely will not tolerate is, that's not fair, right? Oh, I hate that. Why? Because it teaches bad theology. So you would do your children a favor to not allow that in your house because it's reinforcing bad theology. They're going to be the people that have a problem with Romans 9 and have a problem with God. That's not fair. Well, <laughs> these two don't do it ever, right? Good job, guys. <laughs> I know when school's starting again because they come home and it's like they want to say it because they're around their friends. That's not... Sorry, Dad. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just... Oh, you don't go there. And it's usually because someone else has something good. And you don't have it. And so you say, that's not fair. Well, that's not a good thing to say. What's fair is that nobody has anything. From a biblical perspective, isn't it great that your sister or brother or friend has this good gift? Wow, that's amazing. I'm glad for them. But that's not how our sinful heart works. I want that. That's not fair. Fair is that we're all having iPods, you know, or whatever it might be. That's not fair. Let's not say that to God. That's not fair is, oh, you want fair? Yeah. You're born with a sin nature. You should be in hell now. Oh, okay. I guess I don't want fair. I mean, we, if we have anything in our mind, it should be that by now in Romans. Fair is that we're all smoked. And if God chooses to save some, it just means He's gracious. It doesn't mean He's not fair. Okay, so, so far at this point in time, what kind of drink are you going to order at Starbucks today? <laughs> I'm going to get a Dopio Espresso is what I'm going to do. I had French press this morning, man. I'm ready to go for the big deal. This afternoon. Okay, that was the nice argument. He's going to crank it up a little bit more about this fairness issue. Look at verses 17 and 18, and we can do this quickly. For the Scripture, he just keeps quoting the Bible, you know? It would be a lot easier if he would just quote a philosopher or a theologian, because then we could disagree. But this is total trump card. For the Scripture, Exodus 9.16, says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. I mean, that is just throwing down the gauntlet. All right, you want another illustration? Let's use Pharaoh. 
What, what do we learn from Pharaoh? We learn from Pharaoh it's all divine initiative. If you look at verse 18, you see God's freedom to act as He sees fit. In the case of Pharaoh, it's hardening. God is sovereignly in charge and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's sovereignty. And then in verse 17, we see that God does what He did in 18 actually for a greater purpose. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So logically, you want to look at 18 first. God is the one that raised him up. Pharaoh was a great man, a powerful man. He was the man. How did he get to that position of authority? God raised him up to that position of authority. That's how he got there. So that God can do something we learn about in the next, in the earlier verse to show his greatness. He put him there and he hardened him so that God could show that he is greater than the greatest man on earth. He is greater than Pharaoh. And to serve a greater purpose. What is the greater purpose? At the end of verse 17. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Everybody would be talking about it. Did you hear what God did to the Egyptians? Big bad Pharaoh is a chump. Is who Pharaoh is. Did you see what God did to them? The plagues and over and over again. This God of the Israelites. This Yahweh God is great. And then if you think about it, His greatness comes to His people. He delivered them. In one sense, it's sounding a lot like Romans 8.28. Even using the bad to bring about the good. Even using the bad man to exalt God who causes all things to work together for those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose. God is glorified more and God's people benefit as a result. God's behind it all. God is sovereignly behind it all. And if you read the accounts, it's just jumping off the page, you know. Go back and read the accounts of what happened and, and you see, man, God, God is looking a lot like He's God and dealing with Pharaoh. It's great. Now, one of the questions that will come up, and I don't really want to deal with it much now. We'll save it for a question time, but I'll at least address it. And that's, we want to quickly say, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. Well, that might be the case, but that's not what's emphasized in Romans 9. Okay, if you go back and look and see, there are definitely times Pharaoh hardens his heart, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it goes back and goes back and goes back. But that's not what's emphasized in Romans 9. Look at, look at Romans 9, 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse, verse 18 doesn't even hint at saying he hardens whomever first hardens themselves. I mean, you know, and by the way, if that were the idea... Paul would bring that up. Say, hey, you know what? You're going to question the fairness of God. You just need to know. Just lighten up and, and, and don't, don't hold God to account because God was only responding to Pharaoh. But he doesn't use that as an argument. 
He is just bringing out these bold statements that God did this. Oh, and by the way, though, this will be another question that comes up. Since it says he has mercy on whom he has mercy, that assumes that everybody's guilty. Or he wouldn't use that kind of terminology. Pharaoh had a sin nature. He was in Adam. Otherwise, he wouldn't be using that kind of verbiage. And so it wasn't like Pharaoh was somehow morally neutral or good and God made him bad. He has a sin nature. Romans 5. Otherwise, he wouldn't, I don't think, use the mercy terminology here, but we'll talk more about that, I think. I don't know, when I read a passage like this, I, I, again, I just kind of want to sit down in my chair. And I think that's the intent. God is, don't, don't, don't say God is unfair. Don't say that He's a bad guy. Sit down. Have a black coffee. <laughs> this is who God is. He's God. I don't think God would have ever achieved godhood if it would have been up to our vote. But that's ridiculous anyway. We're just talking about God here. And I'm, I'm not trying to be cute or smart mouth or win an argument or anything, but, but in, all, in all pastoral sincerity, if you're really, really having a problem with this, there's nothing I can encourage you to do more than just to read your Bible. Okay, you don't need to go out and buy the, the new latest and greatest book. You don't even need to listen to me. Just start reading your Bible. Notice who's in charge. And notice who's in charge of everything. It's inescapable. God is in charge. God is in charge. God is in charge. And it will really help. It will really help. Because if you don't do that and you don't see that, you really can't feel the blessing and the encouragement and the sureness of Romans 8. Because this God who tries really hard sometimes drops the ball. You're never meant to conclude that. But the only way you can keep from concluding that is if you see that it doesn't depend upon the man who wills or works. It depends upon God who has mercy. This is very practical in that sense. God is free to act like God. God is fair. God is just. He's not only fair and just, He's merciful. Let's move to the third big question about God's sovereign grace, and that is, is God to blame? Is God to blame? Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, in light of verse 18, it says He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. You will say to me then, Mr. or Mrs. Objector, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? This is, this is defense mode. Alright, alright, I've got one for you. You think God is so sovereign? And here's what happens, and this happens quite a bit when you talk to someone about God's sovereignty where they're hostile to it. They try to take God's sovereignty and aim it at Him and have it be against Him. They're going to try to wrestle God's gun from Him, if you will, and aim it at Him and use it against Him. My friends, this is a bad idea. 
But you have conversations with people today, it will sound like this. All right, you think God is sovereign? I've got one for you, pal. And I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, I met you before. Your name is different and your face is different, but I know exactly where you're going. And this is just Romans 9, nothing new under the sun. But rather than stooping to the level of a street fight, at first he doesn't even answer the question. Look at verse 20. But who are you? Oh, man, that's finger in the chest, (laughs) to answer back to God. The contrast is on man and God. All right, pal, I believe you ought not have said that. Right? As John MacArthur said years ago, you know what this means? This means shut up. You just need to shut your trap. You need to shut your mouth. You don't know who you're dealing with here because you are a weasel an ant, a little speck, and you are challenging the God of the universe trying to aim a gun at Him. This is not good for you and it's not going to end well. Right? I mean, you can could, you could feel the, the, the attitude off of verse 19, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Wesley, of all people, I can't believe he said this, of all people, he translated this, Who are you, oh little, impotent, ignorant man? It's blasphemous. What, what, what do you, don't go there with God. It's not good for you. It's not good at all. But then he does give a response. After the shut your mouth response, he gives another response. In verse 20. Uh, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? What's the answer? Uh, of course not, you know? And if, if you don't like this, you're kind of thinking, oh, would you stop being so logical, <laughs> you know? I was just taking this on faith. <laughs> and you're actually making sense here. This is preposterous. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? You know, the answer is absolutely. And we're talking about God, the Creator, and we are creatures. God, man. Huge difference. He's sovereign. He takes a lump of clay and shapes and molds a trash receptacle out of a lump. And the other piece of the lump, he molds and shapes fine china. And the fine china, nor especially the trash receptacle, doesn't say, who do you think you are, God or something? You know, who died and made you God? I wanted to be a fine china or whatever. It's a dumb illustration. It's actually a good illustration. I'm just being dumb about how I'm carrying it out. Lest God strike me dead. (laughs) Just remember who you're talking to is what he's saying. God is the creator. God does what he wants. God defines good by doing what he does. I always have this one locked in my mind when people are grappling with the sovereignty of God and wanting to argue with God about this. And they say, well, you know, obviously, you know, what you believe makes us robots. Uh, No, actually, it doesn't make us robots. Uh, It makes us pottery. Does that make you feel better? You know, 
And I almost feel bad about doing it because you, you see it coming a mile away. Huh. Oh, but that's worse. <laughs> just, just please be careful about what you say to God and, and be careful how you think. We, it's God. He does whatever He wants to do. And if the clay is bad to begin with, because we're all in Adam, this is not about God doing the wrong thing. As one person said, God's sovereign will is accountable to fall. God's sovereign will is unaccountable to fallen man who has no right to call his decisions into question. And that's helpful. Now, Paul's going to get nice, okay? He's nice in verse 22. I think he's nice in all of it, but... Okay, now we're invited to, to, to kind of enter into the circle of discussion, even though it's leading us down a certain path. Look at verse 22. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath, which he does, read Second Thessalonians, read the book of Revelation, read Romans chapter 1, I think it's verse 18. What if, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, it seems like power related to wrath, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Let's just pause for a second. I mean, would there be any objection to that? I mean, biblically, logically, you know, you know God, God is patiently enduring. He does want to show His wrath because it will show His justice and righteousness. But if, but if He's going to be patient about it instead of giving everyone what they deserve from the very beginning, I mean, is God unjust? Is God to blame or something? No, 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 this is, this is okay, this is good. But then that serves a greater purpose in verse 23. In order to, now we have our purpose. This is why God is doing it that way. In order to make known, in order to reveal the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. There's no foul in that. That God is, is, is treating these in a certain way, patiently waiting to give them what they deserve, but ultimately it's to show His great glory, even in executing justice and righteousness, and it is for the good of His people, for the elect, for the chosen, whatever word you want to borrow from Romans 8. There's no foul. In fact, it's really good how God is even using the bad for His ultimate glory and the ultimate good for those whom He has called. He's inviting us into this discussion, if you will, leading it, yes, to a certain conclusion because He assumes that we'll say, you know, that, that, that makes sense. No one could ever fault God for doing that. It's a good way for Him to end that particular argument. I was on an airplane on Friday. And I noticed the guy two rows up from me. I'm reading Romans 9. Just reading it, writing in my Bible. I'm reading Romans 9, and as God's providence would have it, there was a businessman a couple of rows in front of me, and I looked to see what he was reading. He was reading a magazine. And all I could see was the title of the article. When sovereign doesn't mean safe. 
I love this is good timing. This is good luck. <laughs> Another pet peeve in my house. I don't allow that word to be used. When sovereign doesn't mean safe. I thought, what is he reading? And then I thought, I don't care what he's reading. It's making my sermon. <laughs> he was reading a business journal talking about Dubai and what's going on there. When sovereign doesn't mean safe. I like that title a lot. Because when we're talking about God in His sovereignty, showing what He wants to show, giving what He wants to give because He's God, when we're talking about God in His sovereignty, we're talking about a God who is not safe. In other words, we're talking about a God who is not domesticated like a house pet. We are talking about a God who is not on our leash. We're talking about a God who is not safe when it comes to the evangelical consensus and the God we're always looking for. We're talking about a God who is unmanageable. We're talking about a God who is sovereign. Turning that around, in the positive, the article's title couldn't be more incorrect. When sovereign doesn't mean safe, how about when sovereign does mean safe? Take everything we're learning in Romans 9 about God and carry it with you back to Romans 8. When God says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, when God says those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, He also called, He also justified, He also glorified, if that He is the sovereign God who is God acting like God, then indeed Romans 8 is true. And Romans 8 can be counted on because we're not reading Romans 8 seeing Him respond to us and what we might be able to do and what He might foresee us doing. Because if that's the case, if God isn't sovereign a la Romans 9, then Romans chapter 8 just is not safe. And your salvation isn't safe. And neither is mine. But if He's sovereign... Romans 8 is deluxe. Romans 8 is sure. Romans 8 is everything. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can that be true? That can be true because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He called, He also or justified. He also glorified. Unbreakable chain that a non-sovereign God could never build, could never forge, could never keep. But if He's sovereign... It's sure. It's locked in. And we should praise Him. And we should honor Him. And be okay with God being God. Even if no philosopher or theologian or friend agrees. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You so much. 
that you have seen fit to make known the riches of your glory for vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. And how we see it as even better in light of the fact that indeed you are a God who judges as well. To think that we don't face that judgment and to think that it's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because we're smarter than the person next to us. It's not because we're smarter than our neighbor. It's not because we're more spiritual. It's only because of your sovereign purposes. Because you have mercy on those whom you choose to have mercy and you have compassion on those you choose to have compassion. Lord, if need be, may we be people who repent. Lord, if we have made a God in our own image, according to our own likeness, Lord, may we repent and may we realize that we're dealing with you, God, the Great One, the only Sovereign, as Paul says. And may we serve you and honor you. May we have opportunities to think rightly about you and to glorify your great son, Jesus, who makes all of these things sure. In his name we pray, amen.